Hey everyone, this is Tracy. On this episode of the Duke Tip Podcast, there's a showdown among chalkboards, PowerPoints, and overhead projectors. And we talk to a tip instructor who has been teaching tipsters for three decades. Hi, I'm Tracy. She's Katie. And he's Michael. We're all colleagues at Duke Tip, the talent identification program. It's a nonprofit organization dedicated to challenging gifted students, inspiring them to take pride in their abilities, and fostering their educational, social, and emotional development. That's Duke Tip, and this is the Duke Tip Podcast. We talk about motivating academically talented students, following through on your passions, and learning to love learning. We'll talk to educators, guidance counselors, admissions officers, scientists, authors, artists, entrepreneurs, journalists, and anyone else who might have something to say to the parents and teachers of academically talented students. And to the students themselves. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number three of the Duke Tip Podcast. It's just me in the studio, but I have an amazing guest. I'm very excited to introduce our guest for this episode, Dr. John King. John is a professor of economics at the State University of New York, Oswego, and he's also been an instructor at Duke Tip Summer Studies Program since 1987. John, thanks so much for being here, and welcome to the Duke Tip Podcast. I'm very happy to be here. We'll talk to John about his unprecedented stint as a Duke Tip instructor a little later. But first, oh, you know what I learned? All I learned was we know nothing. And I learned it from watching you. Oh, you know what I learned? This is a segment in which we describe the single most fascinating thing we've each learned recently. This week, I learned a really cool but also creepy fact. I like facts that um, have a- analogies so that you can like have an image or a visualization of the actual data. And so I learned that the uh, gut brain, you know, we have a, mm-hmm. a second brain, right? So that's in our gut, and we talk about gut feeling, and we, um, we say we, we do something from the gut. And so science... Um, you know, has discovered, and this isn't recent, but science has sort of known that we have a collection of, of a nerve center, so to speak, in our gut that um, helps process food and helps send signals and is completely autonomous, has programs that it runs in a sort of uh, computer science sense of the word. Um, and what I found out was that that gut brain actually, even though it's, it's not a, a center brain in the way we visualize our own brain is this, you know, brain matter structure, it's woven in our stomach lining. So it's, ner- it's, a, it's a, a nerve center that's sort of spread out um, in our guts. Um, and it has 500 million nerve cells and over 100 million uh, neurons which is amazing. And actually that's about the same size, a little bit bigger maybe than a cat's brain. So that's the part I like, right? Like the image of a cat's brain um, being in your gut sort of spread out. So that's pretty cool. Um, it's also, I think, two thirds of all of the nerve matter in a cat, a full grown cat. So we just think about the fact that uh, we have this second center that is big enough to make all of those types of decisions uh, and also talks to our actual brain, which is pretty amazing. I wasn't aware of that. That's fascinating. I know there's been a lot of research done on um, on the gut and so forth and how it influences behavior and right. the, the mix of bacteria we have, but I wasn't aware of those particular things. That's yeah, it's really fascinating. And, you know, people are figuring out, neurologists and scientists are figuring out that if they can treat the gut, if they can help with uh, gut diversity in terms of flora and they can, and maybe with probiotics, then 
they can help with mood disorders and depression and anxiety and all of these things that we think of as being, you know, in our brain. It's actually a chemistry that's really managed elsewhere, um, which is pretty great. Um, and then, then I also learned that the the main focus of the brain in terms of work is integration of information, right? So we have we have stimuli, and so the brain is integrating all of that and figuring out what to do with it. Um, but the gut brain is really sort of processing and sending up signals through hormones and other things. And so it'll send up, I'm full, or I need food, or or we need food or, um, what have you. And so it's, uh, the brain, but the brain, um, and this is from a, a Ted talk I watched about it as well. The, the brain has an override. And so it can get that signal and say no, which is what happens when we over overeat. Um, or, you know, if we decide that we're, we're not hungry, we can't eat right now, we ignore it. Um, so that's kind of cool that we have this sort of relationship between two centers. Uh, my husband is a computer scientist, so I like the idea that we have programming that's happening and that we have two data centers that are talking to each other all the time in the background. Pretty great. Interesting. So we always uh, want to give our guests uh, a chance to, to share something they've learned. So John, what have you learned recently? One of the things I've learned recently is the importance of feedback in learning. That I had always known that giving students feedback was important, but there's been some research done uh, that I wasn't aware of until very recently that indicates that delayed feedback actually is more effective than immediate feedback. Mm. Um, that the studies suggests that having the delay seems to be useful for perhaps a couple of reasons. There's a couple of hypotheses for this. One is that the delay provides a little bit more spacing of practice, and that by itself is important in every study that's been done. Uh, and the other is that when people are getting immediate feedback, sometimes they come to rely on the feedback and perhaps do a little bit less processing. If they're getting the feedback along the way, they they're not putting as much, quite as much effort into the decision-making when they're making decisions. That is pretty fascinating because I think, you know, when I think about being in a dynamic classroom or, you know, if I'm having a discussion, I think about that, you know, saying something out loud and having someone respond to it feels like a good thing to me. I'm a verbal communicator, so it feels good that way. And I'm sure this is. I think this had more to do with like assessment with tests and yeah. papers and such things that some delay was better than none in terms of the impact on long-term recall. Oh, that's interesting. So I wonder if there's a, a an upper limit, like a min-max. You know, I, I was looking to see if there's evidence on that, and it's an area that I think is still under investigation. Right. Um, you probably wouldn't want it more than a day or so um, to be most effective, but, but I'm not sure. Um, but certainly, you know, a week or more later is going to be a whole lot less effective than if it's sooner. Yeah, and then there's that classic scenario um, that happens sometimes in university level teaching where you don't get feedback about your paper for, you know, you hear students say, I didn't get anything back for a month, so I had no idea what to do, or, or I didn't get it in time to, to integrate the feedback. And that's something that really troubles me because in one of my other jobs, I'm the director of a teaching center and I do a lot of work with faculty. And when I hear those concerns from students, it's really troubling. Uh, and sometimes I'll hear faculty say that they don't give students feedback until the end of the semester, which is not particularly helpful. It, if they students don't receive the feedback early, they're not able to respond to that and grow over the course of the semester. Yeah, or ask questions. And I also, it probably ends up, uh, for some faculty, resulting in just extended office hours, because I'm sure some students are proactive and say, hey, I would like feedback, and then you end up doing it verbally on the fly and <laughs> in a meeting later or something like that. 
Um, so I think we should move on. We have another segment that we like to invite folks to, um, and that's just the tell me more middle of the section of the podcast where we ask questions of our guests and get to know a little bit more about their background. Um, you've been in the tip family for a long time. Uh, so let's move on to tell me more. You look like you want to tell me something. Tell me something true. I have so much to learn from you. Tell me more. This is the part of the show where we delve into our guest area of expertise. John, you've been teaching tipsters for 30 years, which puts you in a league of your own. Uh, first question, how many Duke tip t-shirts do you own? <laughs> uh, quite a few, because in the early years of the program, there was often a staff t-shirt, and then there'd be two t-shirts from the classes each year, as well as the program t-shirt. So um, I probably have 60, 65 or so t-shirts. Oh, wow. That's amazing. There's got to be a photo shoot opportunity, I think, in there somewhere to have them <laughs> up. Yep, he's wearing, oh. in the studio, John is wearing Tip Macro East to 2013. Um, so I'm imagining, you know, those episodes of uh, collectors' uh, interviews where they go to the garage and they're just strung up everywhere. We need a, a tip t-shirt or maybe a quilt or something. That would probably be the most effective way of doing it. Right now, they're in several bins that I bring back and forth every year. Oh, great. So you still, you're still wearing them all the time. I still am wearing most of them, yeah. Some of them got a little bit smaller over the year. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, people who are around tip, particularly our summer programs, our face-to-face -face programs, know the T-shirt's like an artifact that you hang on to. I'd be interested to see if, they, if we have any student listeners from back in the day who also have their t-shirts still. And I see quite a few of them coming back when students come back on staff. Um, oh. So I've seen quite a few of them reemerge. There's, I think, four of them kicking around on campus now, or three, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Every year we have uh, tipster, former tipsters who come back and work. I actually went to, uh, I had a minor cut, and I went to the emergency room, and the doctor was a former tipster. And started talking to me about how he went back to teach. So they're all over the place. I've been amazed at the places where I've run into former tipsters. Uh, again, in my other job as a director of the teaching center, we brought in um, a, someone to give a keynote address and run a symposium. And when I picked her up at the airport and drove her up to campus, we were talking about our teaching experiences. And I mentioned that I had been teaching in a summer program at Duke for a number of years. Uh, and she turned to me and said, would that be tip? Um, she was a tipster in the early 1980s. Mm. So did you, so she didn't encounter you, I suppose you, you no, overlapped. No, she was here a little bit earlier. She okay. was here, I think in 81 to 83 or 84. And we do have a, a tip staff member, I should mention, uh, Brian Denton, uh, who was the, in the very first summer studies class and he works at tip now. So we do have, uh, we have I didn't realize Brian had been at tip back then. Oh yeah. Nice. He's got tip officially in his blood, I think at this point. Um, so I'm hoping we can get John to tell lots of stories about uh, his time at TIP. I mean, the, drawing out some bigger thoughts about giftedness, the state of K-12 education, the state of higher education, too, with your experience. Um, so I have to ask, what keeps you coming back to Duke TIP summer after summer? It's a lot of fun. <clears throat> that typically when I'm working with students in college, they're not quite as energetic. They're not quite as engaged. They're, they don't make connections quite as quickly or as easily. <clears throat> the time spent in the classroom just flies by. I wonder, too, um, I mean, I think tipsters will say that often. You talk to them, they say it's a lot of fun. Um, and we do 
I think in the interviews I've been with instructors, we say teaching these kids is going to be great. Um, but for maybe a young instructor or an instructor who is just starting out, um, what do you think you would tell them about teaching gifted kids at TIP in particular? That it's pretty much the best teaching experience you get. You know, you the students are very, very interested in the subject. They bring in a rich background, a very diverse background from their other courses. Uh, I've had students who came into an introductory course um, after seventh or eighth grade, back when uh, first years were here, uh, who had already read Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. And um, <laughs> probably one or two percent of economists have actually done that because it's a very thick uh, volume and it's somewhat tedious in places. Um, and I've had students come in with very rich backgrounds in math. I've had students come in as eighth or ninth graders who already had worked through calculus or multivariate calculus and were making connections from that. Uh, just this past semester, this past term, uh, first term, um, we were giving some additional test questions for a student who came in who wanted to apply some calculus, but no one else in the class had it. So, you know, we gave him some extra questions on each of the assessments we did and some others just for him to work on during evening session. And you teach both macro and microeconomics, mm -hmm. right? Just, I don't know if we had mentioned that yet. Um, so I've heard tip staff say, one, once you've met one tipster, you've met one tipster. Um, so do you agree with that or do you think you can nail down what makes a tipster a tipster? TIPS students are very diverse. Um, they come in with very different backgrounds, very different interests. Um, I suppose the, the commonality is they are very interested in learning. They're very enthusiastic about learning. <clears throat> and they're just very curious. I also think there's something about um, being... Because gifted kids are, di are diverse. It's not a homogenous group. There are so many ways that giftedness gets expressed. Um, and, of course, we do teach different grade levels as well. So you have students coming in at different developmental stages in their lives. Um, but I think there's something really strong about that feeling of tribe that happens at TIP. You know, kids are coming together um, and, re and seeing each other seeing themselves in each other even, you know, seeing that sort of bright mind that I also have this interest and I want to go deep on this subject. So is that something you've seen in your classes over time that kids are making connections with ideas, but with each other too? Very much so. And I know a lot of alumni because when I started in the program, nearly all of the staff had been tipsters in the early part of the program. And I still see many of them in the summers. Um, people who were here in the early 1980s. At the end of this term, there's going to be another big gathering of people, many of whom are second, you know, have second generation TIP students. Um, in six of the last seven terms, I've had one or three students, one to three students who parents had been tipsters, either oh, one wow. or both of them. <laughs> that is great. We've got to find those folks and track them down, do a story on TIP family. Actually, they'll be here uh, at the end of the third uh, third week of the term. Oh, um, wow. There's a big reunion thing, and they'll be doing a tour here, so that might be a good time to make some connections. Oh, my goodness. That would be so, that would be so neat. I mean, I, you know, I think one of the reasons people, you know, students say they come back, and we do have some students who come back and say, I, I want a class. I have a preference, and we always encourage students to, to state their preference about the, t the topic, but they want so much that experience of being together with other tipsters and being in the classroom with um, an expert educator who's excited about 
they're being excited um, that we do have kids who are saying, I want the social emotional experience and the growth I have here because it's important that I feel connected to that part of me. And then I go back to school through the year and it, 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 in some ways for some students, it doesn't really matter even what, what class they're in, even though we do encourage people to pick something they like. Um, but I, that's the, that's the electricity I feel when I'm on campus is that these kids want to be here. They want to be with each other. They want to meet other kids. The conversations they have outside of the classroom or on break or at lunch, dinner, breakfast, and during evening activities is probably at least as important as what happens in the classroom. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we've, you know, we have a big co-curricular focus. Um, uh, Paris Andrews, our assistant director in that area, and I love that we have a dedicated staff, a dedicated team who's looking at what's happening outside the classroom too, because that's huge. Um, And we're teaching the whole kid. We're not just teaching their academic interest, right? But we ask them and we encourage parents to look at topics that the student might want to explore um, outside of their regular school, take a chance on a topic they maybe don't know as much about. Do you find that you've got students who come in without econ on the brain? Very much so. Um, one of the things I do as an icebreaker at the, the very beginning of the term is I ask students to you know, identify themselves, to tell a little bit about themselves, where they're from. And also I ask them what uh, whether the class was their first, second, third, fourth, fifth, or nth choice, yes. uh, and why. Uh, and many of the students come in thinking that economics is something very different than it is. They think they're going to learn about making money in the stock market <laughs> or something. Uh, and many others have very little idea. They just want to explore something new. Uh, and some of them get really turned on by it. Others realize it's not something they're interested in, but that's a useful learning experience. Oh, yeah, that's valuable, too, um, being able to take a chance on something and go deep in it for three weeks and figure out what it is and what it isn't, and also whether or not that's something you want to spend a lot of time in as a major. Um, we've got a lot of students who um, say they are going to be this, whether it's a doctor or a neurologist or you know veterinarian, whatever it is, um, and I think... Looking back on even my own development, it took a while for me to figure out that that wasn't what... I wanted to be a veterinarian for a very long time um, until I figured out that at some point all science is just math. Like I got to a point and I was like, oh my goodness, am I doing math here? Oh, okay. No, <laughs> that's... <laughs> <laughs> that is not the the cuddly, warm puppy cuddling that I thought I was going to be doing. <laughs> Many of the students end up taking my classes because their parents think that economics would be a really good field for them. And at the end of the term conferences, probably about a third of the parents will be asking, is this something my child should be doing? And my response is, well, your child does this very well, but they'll probably do lots of things very well. And over half of all people who start college change their majors within the first two years if they come in with a major. Um, So there's a very good chance that your students, you know, your children might be um, interested in something quite different. And at this age, what they should be doing is exploring things very widely. Well, and getting to know, getting to learn how to learn, right? Like learning how to become a student Mm -hmm. is, is this, it's not a class you take, but is this ongoing background project that being in school um, is something that we're all doing. And I know even when I went to university, there were students who were sophomore juniors who still just didn't know how to be a student, like didn't know how they learned, didn't know how they studied, what was best for them. 
And that's actually something I think that TIP students face as more of a problem than many other students mm. because in the regular classes, <clears throat> they find the material so easy, they don't really have to work very hard. Right. Uh, and this is a bit of a challenge for them, especially when it comes here the first time. And it's a very positive challenge. Um, but sometimes they do need a little bit of coaching on what is effective in learning. And in my classes, I do spend increasingly more time talking about those things, both here and in my college. Because, do, you, mm -hmm. do you find that you've got students with different note-taking styles with technology, mobile devices? Like, how, what is, I'm not as familiar with how technology works on campus this summer. What are they doing? It, it varies. Um, most students take notes. Most of them actually take notes on paper. Um, and that's very good because the research on that's pretty much overwhelming, that note-taking on paper is much more effective in recall than note-taking with computers. Um, a few students do that, um, mostly those who have issues with, with handwriting or mm, other things, mm -hmm. but, but even the students who use computers for notes um, tend to do it much more effectively than most college students. Uh, the problem with taking notes on computers is that when people are doing that in college classrooms, they tend to try to write everything down without mm processing it very much. Like transcribing. Transcribing. And they're not really thinking about the material, which is really where the learning occurs. Um, what's most effective is when the process of condensing and abstracting and trying to make connections and writing down the key concepts. And with handwriting, because you don't want to write as much, uh, it forces you to process the information a bit more thoroughly, which, which is very effective. Now, not all students take notes, uh, and not all of them need to take notes, and students do vary quite a bit in that. Um, that's been a big issue um, in terms of um, research with whether instructors should post notes in advance mm. in colleges. Uh, and the evidence on that is is very mixed, that some note-taking is helpful, um, but when students spend more of their time trying to um, transcribe information, it's much less helpful than actively processing the information. Well, I remember uh, there were times when I was taking notes and I would go back to study and actually the process of taking notes was more impactful than looking back at them. Um, like it, what you're saying, it was more meaningful in the moment in terms of retention and processing than actually sitting down and reading my notes later. They, they very often my notes and depending on the subject didn't become a resource after the fact, they just became a part of learning. Very much so. And the same thing back when I was using a chalkboard for instruction before I was using PowerPoint Prezi's and other things, um, the act of writing my notes up was the real preparation. I hardly ever looked at them, uh, except perhaps at the end to see if there was something I forgot. Um, but the act of putting it together is useful in organizing things the same way when you put together a PowerPoint or Prezi or other type presentation. Well, and that's the points back to experiential learning, right? Like the actual doing of it is part of how you're absorbing the information. I heard a, uh, a study that uh, I think came out this week or last week that was about listening to music while learning a task. And essentially what they were saying was that um, listening to music, particularly a certain rhythm that was on a certain task by hand, was actually helping students not necessarily retain more than the students in the study who weren't listening to music, but it was actually changing their brain structure while they were learning um, in a way that could be evidenced by, you know, uh, x-ray or CT scan. They're actually saying that um, brain, uh, the brain structures were, were changing because there was music and some other audio happening while the student was experiencing the learning, which is pretty fascinating that there are these ways that we're, we're making impacts 
physically mm-hmm. even, not just sort of emotionally, like I feel better about these notes. <laughs> and that, that varies, again, depending on the type mm-hmm. of music and students. For many students, it is helpful. Um, another related sort of concept is that there's some, at least weak evidence, that studying material and reading in different places helps increase retention of knowledge mm-hmm. uh, just because there's more additional links or hooks mm-hmm. that and ties to the material. But music has also been found for many people to be effective as long as it's not distracting, basically. So you mentioned PowerPoint Prezi, you mentioned chalkboard, which I, I very much miss. Um, did, did you, when you were teaching at TIP in maybe the, the late 80s, early 90s, were there still overhead projectors? What was um, the technology in the classroom? There were overhead projectors. When I first started teaching at TIP, there were rows of desks in some of the classrooms. They were bolted to the chairs, the things <laughs> that looked like they came out of the 1920s and actually had come out of the 1920s. But um, but we've had projectors in the classrooms, at least in the classroom I've been in for at least 20 years, well, 15 years or so. Um, I never used an overhead. I did use a chalkboard, but now I'm using a computer most of the time uh, and using mobile devices Mm. most of the time. For at least four or five years, I've been doing a lot with polling of students that uh, I use the Socrative app in class where we'll put up questions. Um, One of the nice things is when you call on students and ask them to do something, you only hear from one of the students. Uh. And it may be the student who knows it better than everybody else, or it may be the only student who's struggling with something. Um, There's been a lot of research with using clickers and using polling where there's some substantial gains from peer instruction and a a good practice is to put up questions that require a bit of effort or a bit of processing where about half of the students will get it wrong. Uh, So you poll them, you see the results, and then you let them discuss it and explain it to each other and debate on it. It's a technique that was developed by Eric Missouri at Harvard in physics, and it's been found to be dramatically effective in increasing student learning. Um, He found learning gain, and he and Carl Wyman in a separate study found learning gains of between two and 300% Mm. between pre-tests and post-tests on it. And I've been doing that for quite a few years now, and it it seems to work very well here. It gives me some feedback on what students understand and what they don't. And if I find that, you know, 80% of them can't solve a problem, then it suggests I need to go back and fill in some gaps. Uh, if they all get it right, then we don't really need to talk about that very much and we can move on to more advanced topics. But the act of them explaining it to each other is very helpful for all the students because the students who don't quite get it learn better from other students at the same level of cognitive development. And the students who do understand it reinforce and deepen their knowledge by having to explain it and trying to resolve misunderstandings of other students. And it's, it's remarkably effective. Well, and that reminds me of, you know, you're talking about the scenario where you put something up and maybe you only hear from one student, the, the Hermione Granger, let's say, in the classroom. Um, so what that also does, though, is if you're, if you're quietly confused, which is all of us at some point, mm-hmm. um, you have to make a call about whether or not you're going to express that or just hope that someone else covers what you're also confused about. I love that you could just put it out there that it's okay to not know. Mm-hmm. And I encourage students to accept that there's going to be a lot of things they don't know. And that's a new experience for many TIP students Mm. when it's the first time here. Well, and it's also um, good practice for life. Mm-hmm. You know, outside the classroom, um, that asking a question, not knowing, um, being the person who expresses out loud, not knowing, probably there's someone else like you in the room. 
um, and that that sort of uh, appearance of knowledge is not as valuable as actual knowledge. Actual knowledge. And that <laughs> making mistakes and learning from them is much more effective than just getting everything right on a quiz or a test or being able to demonstrate your knowledge because you don't learn much from that. You learn from making mistakes and process, processing that information a bit more deeply in response to that. One of the things I love the most about TIP courses is that we are, since we're not accredited, um, we do have some freedom in not just the topics that we offer, but the, the way and the pacing we can work with the students who are in the room. Um, and you mentioned, you know, we might need to review or we can just go forward. Is Do you find that you're flexing that way with TIP students? Like you might jump forward in one term in a second week then, and you might not another I never know exactly how much I'm going to cover in any given day or how much material we'll cover because sometimes classes pick things up incredibly quickly and we just move on to the next topic. Other times, you know, they have difficulties or issues that I hadn't anticipated and every class is different. Every student is different. And um, I know we're asked to provide a day by day syllabus of what we do before the term. And I've never quite been able to do that. I can <laughs> provide a sequential <laughs> list of things we'll be addressing. Uh, and sometimes we do more than was in there or more than I anticipated. Um, but it's it's difficult to predict that because students will get stuck on different things at different terms. And um, and we we have the time and flexibility to address that. Right. And we can go deep if we need mm -hmm. to, when we need to. Um, and so even, uh, you know, you might find that you're going deep at a different point in the week or in the term mm -hmm. than you did last term. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a good actually segue because we were uh, we wanted to ask one semester in one of your college courses versus three weeks in one of your Duke tip courses. Uh, what's different? What's similar? Um, the, the content is very much the same, except we tend to go into it a little bit more deeply at TIP. Uh, the breadth and depth of coverage tends to be a little bit higher um, because students start at a higher level and it's such an intense experience where they have so much time to work with the material and process it. They can do quite a bit more in three weeks. Um, and while, you know, it's not a a college course. Um, we do cover pretty much everything that a typical college course does, and many of the students go on and take the AP exam. Mm. It wasn't something I encouraged mm. or even considered when I first started teaching here, but I've had students who took one course and uh, one summer and then came back for the other and said, and by the way, I took the AP exam and I did really well on it. Um, so it's something that you know, I encourage students to think about if it's something they want to pursue. That's exciting. Accidentally get an AP. Yeah, just while I'm at it. Um, so do you find that that intensity is partially just about the sustain, the stamina of staying in the classroom because tip classes are all day? Yes. Well, it's the, the quality of the students as well as the intense focus and the ability to spend seven hours a day, Monday through Thursday, six hours on Friday mm -hmm. and three hours on Saturday, just working on that material. Well, I know some students that I went to school with um, and people I know now uh, really don't do well with that transition that happens when you have four classes a day or three classes a day or even in high school, six or seven, whatever the periods are. Um, and and this idea of the block learning, I know, is something that was coming up in high schools for a while. It's like, do we do two hours and sit students down? Um, so I wonder, too, if it's just... That some learners, um, people who want to go deep, and often a giftedness is the task commitment and that intensity of learning and intensity of attachment to the material, um, sticking with it all day versus 
being there for what 45 minutes 90 minutes and then transitioning your thinking to a completely different subject that just happens to fall in your schedule in general the interleave practice where people switch tasks and do things is useful for learning or at least that's what most of the research suggests and spacing learning over a longer period is useful um, so you know i think it works well for many students but gifted students seem to work with that a little bit differently uh, in that the intense focus seems to work pretty well where the we don't see the same rate of diminishing returns to mm. additional hours spent on mm. a subject that we do for most students. Well, I'm sure that um, we have parents who are listeners as well. I'm sure they recognize that because that sort of task commitment, that's, that's a gifted kid t- taking a book in a corner for five hours and only coming up for snacks. That's, you know, I think that probably they recognize that. Um, so you mentioned a student uh, took the AP, then came back. Have you kept in touch with any students? Have you seen their sort of charted their progress after TIP? Many of them. Uh, what happened was about eight or nine years ago, one of my um, my TAs borrowed my computer uh, during a break and logged into Facebook. And she saw I had a Facebook account or in the early years of Facebook, but hadn't really used it. So she added me as a friend and then all the other TIP staff did. And then many of them had been former students. So then former students added me. So I've got probably six or seven hundred former TIP students oh, um, wow. as Facebook friends yeah. dating back to the late 80s. And having, you know, being adults living full lives with careers, have any of them gone on to do economics? Quite a few. A number of them have PhDs in economics. Some have worked, in, well, one of them is working at Research Triangle Econometrics, I believe. Um, one is a chief financial officer at Reurb Nation downtown, oh, well, just a couple blocks from here. Um, Many of they're doing many different things. Um, four of them that I know of are professional musicians and are doing quite well. Well, there's that tie between uh, math, some types of math and, and music, right? Like mm-hmm. there seems to be some relationship between that. Um, so we have a couple other questions. Sure. So this is the most impossible question ever. What is your favorite tip memory? That changes all the time. That's a great (laughs) answer. It's really hard to say. One of the most memorable tip memories I have was the very first time I was teaching and I had no idea what I was getting into. And I had just covered, um, we had just talked about uh, individual preferences and how we can use those to generate rankings. And in economics, we talk about something called indifference curves, which are sets of points that all generate the same level of happiness. And I had, we had just talked about what's needed in order to be able to generate what what we call a utility function. Uh, And I asked students if... um, if indifference curves could cross. And that was something I had actually talked about in a graduate course a year or so before that. Uh, And it was a bit of a struggle. The students in the graduate course understood why they couldn't, but they couldn't immediately articulate it. A very quiet student immediately just yelled out, that would violate the transitivity of preference assumption. I was just amazed at how quickly the student was able to respond. And it was someone who had generally been very quietly sitting there. Well, I think uh, tip parents and gifted parents in general could recognize that, uh, or parents of gifted students, I should say, recognize that Stillwater's run deep phenomenon of there's a lot of processing, but the student is maybe quiet on the surface. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, have you ever gone to the tip dances or quad fest or I've tip by them a little bit? I did go to <laughs> when in my early years in the program. I did sit through a couple of um, or 
not actively participate, but wander through some of the quad fests. And I, I have observed the tip dances often, you know, as I'm walking by without yeah. actually being there. Much of the staff does get involved in that. I tend not to. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of enthusiasm there and there's a lot of excitement there. And the last tip dance is always something where there's a lot of kids crying and very upset. Oh, yeah. Well, and that's, you know, I, I know that that is... It's it's a, a specific phenomenon of going, you know, the, you're you're about to leave this intense experience. Um, but I also know that isn't that just the truth of most dances, like middle school dances? I think somebody has to cry at the end. Like there has to be some <laughs> someone has, has just been upset. I think it's the nature of, of a dance is that there's going to be high drama, um, but also <clears throat> intensity of feeling, positive feeling. Um, well, John, thanks for telling us uh, more about life inside the tip classroom. Um, I really appreciate the way your stories, since you have so many of them, um, help illustrate some of the nature of tipsters, but also gifted kids in general. Um, and I think we should move on to our last segment. Failure is instructive. Failure is growth. Failure is learning. Failure is one option. In this segment, we remember that it's okay to fail. Uh, as the philosopher John Dewey wrote, failure is not mere failure. It is instructive. The person who really thinks learns quite as much from his failures as from his successes. So I'll start this segment um, and talk about a recent failure of mine. Um, I uh, bought a house in 2014, and we uh, were able to, fortunately, able to install a sort of a river rock bed in our backyard. And we did it uh, right next to the house because we, we didn't want a lot of vegetation next to the structure and near the foundation. And we patted ourselves on the back because we we're like, this is great. We're never going to have to worry about any grass right next to the house. It's like a three foot river rock bed border. It looks really nice. Um, it, it, grass is not there, but weeds from the topsoil love it. And so weeds come out from the rocks all the time. Um, so I have recently tried three different types of weed killing formulas <laughs> and failed every time. I've tried to be very scientific about it and spray one batch on one set of weeds and one on another. I'm trying to make my life easier so that I don't have to get down and hand pull them. Um, and none of them worked, none of them at all. Um, and so what I, but hand pulling does work. And so what I've learned through this failure of trying to use chemicals, um, and it wasn't my first choice, but trying to use chemicals to, to beat back weeds is that, um, A, being a homeowner is mostly manual labor that never stops. Just needed to learn that. I think I've finally fully accepted it. Um, and two, probably with plant matter, the easy way out is just not going to be the answer. So I'm probably going to have to get down and hand, hand pull these weeds. Um, I was trying to do the good thing and avoid using chemicals that were, you know, going to harm my dog or harm me. Um, and so I was like, I'll just buy these other ones. Well, no, no, that's not going to work. Um, and I, I find that owning a home um, is a lot of trial and error. I like to call it uh, house foo, like kung fu. I'm just trying to <laughs> attain more skills every single year. And so I just learned that that's the easy way out. It's not going to work. Not for a house. <laughs> I have a house that's 120 years old, so oh, I understand. Wow. <laughs> is it in a historic part? Of, no. No, no, it's just... It's, it's an old town, an old city, but um, I do know 
that repairs and work on a home is often much more than anticipated. Absolutely. So what have you learned or what is your failure that you'd like to share? Oh, there's there's many, but one I'll, I'll mention is actually one I've, I've experienced many different times. I often tend to be overly ambitious in my classes. And if I learn of a new technique or if I want to make a change, I often jump right in without really thinking about the amount of time required. Um, this past spring, I, um, I was forced to make a major revision in an online class that I teach uh, because the textbook that I had ordered um, wasn't available. And I didn't discover that until about a week before the semester. Mm. Uh, and the structure was completely different. The terminology was completely different. And this was a course where I had prepared dozens and dozens of videos and online quizzes and oh materials. So I had to rebuild that and I decided I was going to do much better videos uh, and try to create like 50 or 60 videos in the semester. Uh, and it turned out I couldn't quite do all of that. So um, I, I have... I am gradually learning that I can't make all the changes at once and I have to gradually build up. But um, I've never been particularly good at that. And um, But Sometimes you have to um, make gradual changes or small changes rather than many massive changes all at once. Well, you know, the thing, I, I feel your pain because I, I work in the online um, area of TIP. And so we have two uh, very popular online programs. And every year for our summer program uh, that's for the older students, we find that books go out of print um, you know, editions swap and then, you know, we can't get the enough copies of the older editions. We have to switch to the new edition. Um, and that is very real pain for, for teachers. I, I feel like it's the it's sort of background, you know, unsung struggle of, of teachers who are working cyclically because you just may, you just don't know, uh, when you just have to re and like you said, pagination will change, terminology will change. And then all of a sudden all your work is, is, needs to be redone. Yes. And my older videos were old and some of them had been sitting around for a while and some of them even used flash, I hate to say, but, um, and not all of them were as captioned as they should have been. Mm. So I was, I went in, got, got some nice blue screens and green screens and was starting off really well with making six or seven videos the first week. Um, and then maybe five the next and then four and then <laughs> it tapered off where I just decided to focus on the things that students most needed with the intention of adding more as I went on and focusing more and developing the other content that was most pressing. And there is now a growing number of YouTube videos out there. So oh. I didn't need to do as much yeah. as I did when I was first doing this 20 some years ago. Do you use, are there uh, particular YouTube resources that you find are trustworthy or is it sort of by well, issue? For, for intro courses, this was an upper level course where there weren't really very many, but, um, but the crash course videos tend to be very good. Um, and John Green actually was a tipster. You probably yes. know that. Uh, but, um, and those videos have become really useful in economics. I have, I let students use them a bit in my class here actually to review some of the materials that they want to explore a little bit more. Um, the Khan Academy ones are okay. They, they tend not to have quite the same production values, mm. but the content generally is good. But. Yes, I'd love to, to talk about John Green more. He might be a whole separate episode. Um, John Kane, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're running off now to teach, right? Yes, thank you. Wonderful. Uh, so to our listeners out there, if you haven't, oh, you know what I learned, you'd like to share or any failure is instructives to send in, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email to podcast at tip.duke.edu 
or leave us a voicemail at 919-668-9127. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review on iTunes. Visit tip.duke.edu to learn all about Duke Tips programs and how you can get involved. Bye-bye.